Support for An Honest Account comes from Open Money, who are making financial advice affordable and accessible to everyone. Open Money offer personalised financial advice online by asking you a few questions and telling you about the next steps for your money. That could be working down debt, saving a cash buffer or investing. Then they give you the tools and advice to help you move forward with your finances through their app and online portal. If investing is the right move for you, they'll give you investment advice and the option to speak to a qualified financial advisor. You can begin with as little as £1. Their low annual fees means you can keep more of your money. You can download the app today or head to open-money.co.uk for more details. And please remember that with all investing, the value can go down as well as up. And thanks to Open Money. Welcome to An Honest Account, a podcast about how money affects our lives, our work, health, relationships and more. I'm Rachel Revis and today I'm talking to Angelica Malin about girl boss culture. The word was coined in 2014, but has it passed its peak? Is it outdated and patronising or do we still need the term to try and define the different viewpoint and style of women entrepreneurs? Angelica is a journalist, entrepreneur, podcast host. She founded the About Time magazine and the She Started It Live Academy and events, which is all about female empowerment. As someone who is now running a six-figure business in her 20s, there's probably no one better to discuss this topic. So Angelica, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I wanted to ask you on because... I was really interested in that article you wrote for The Telegraph about girl boss culture. And I thought it was quite brave because like we've come on a long way over the past six years or so when kind of feminism hit the mainstream again, I'd say. Um, And there are people, I guess, who would say that the term girl boss is outdated or patronizing, but I like the fact that you interpreted it in a different way. So I was just hoping if we could start off by giving a Tracy, I guess, of the article and your so-called defence of sure. the term. So the the topic came up because People Power Hour had these adverts on the tube um, which said, you do the girl boss thing, we'll do the SEO thing. And they got fined for them, they got told to take them down, that they were um, uh, fulfilling stereotypes of gender. And so this came into the mainstream talking about girl boss and whether the phrase girl boss was outdated, whether it was patronising towards women. And Vicky Spratt wrote a piece for Friday 29 saying that I hope that 2020 is the year that we get rid of girl boss culture. And I read it and I thought it was very interesting, but I think as a girl boss, as a female founder of a company, I personally feel like we need terms that explain the nuances of what it's like to be a female leader or a female founder. And the kind of argument that came out of why we should cancel it is like, oh, we're all bosses, you know? We shouldn't have girl boss and boy boss because we're all bosses. But how I feel is like my experience has been really different being a woman and through all the events I've hosted and the other female founders I've spoken to, they've had very different experiences of what it's like to start a business or to be in a leadership role as a woman. And so I do think that we need language that reflects that. Perhaps the language itself needs to be updated. I agree that girl is a bit infantilizing, but until we have something better, I think it is important to show that there is a difference. Mm. I wanted to ask you about the 
issue we focus on a lot in our culture, which is female representation and having one woman, one woman at the top and that being a symbol for great power and change. And do you think that that issue is tied to girl boss culture and and following on from that? Because when people are successful at the top, it's great. It's seen as, like as I say, a symbol of change. But if they don't do so well, whether it be like the, I think, current CEO of John Lewis or it was a Marissa Mayer of Yahoo who banned working from home and then the share price of Yahoo went down the pan. Um, when that happens, people focus on the failures. And so it, it's kind of like it can be a dangerous thing because it can go either way. Yeah. Well, we definitely don't have enough representation at the top. I think that's that's a given across the board. Like on the FTSE 100, six out of 100 chief execs are women. So like pretty awful. And it hasn't moved in a long time. No, and less than a third of FTSE, FTSE 100 board members are women as well. Mm-hmm. Um so there's obviously massive problems with women not getting to the top in leadership roles. But then I think this does come back to girl boss culture because I think that we need to raise visibility for female leaders and we need to be doing marketing campaigns and slogans and social media campaigns that highlight women in leadership roles. I just think it's important to maintain that visibility. Mm. Even, you know, to go over the top, even if it feels superficial to be doing roundups online of top women to watch or whether, you know, banks want to pull out certain female leaders to front campaigns... You know what, even if they are doing it slightly superficially because it looks good for them to be associated with that cause, I still think it has the same effect, which is to show what women are doing, to highlight that what they're doing and the, perhaps the challenges they face and to inspire. I think that mm. it actually has the same effect, even if perhaps their motives are slightly superficial. Like if you look at International Women's Day, loads of brands jump on the bandwagon of empowerment for like, a month and they talk about it loads and yeah it's kind of annoying that throughout the year perhaps there isn't that focus on empowering female staff or empowering women with your products and services mm. but it still has a really great effect on talking about women for a month so I don't think it's necessarily that bad mm-hmm. and I think also just because something has become kind of commercial and something that brands are making ma- money out of doesn't mean we cancel it like just because it became fashionable for Topshop to make jumpers that had like the future is female on them doesn't mean that the future is female and that we shouldn't still be doing those things the problem i have is that sometimes when i meet really successful women and we'll come on to the fact you've met you are successful and you've met many successful women in your podcast etc um i find that sometimes it's about fitting into the mold like the sheryl sandberg lean in and fitting in Mm -hmm. that's how i see it um you know i remember she had in her book something about oh well if you want to you know pump breast milk just go and do it in, in a cubicle it's not very empowering it's not really an empowering message and then I've personally met or have seen talks from women who talk about fitting into the man's mold or dressing a certain way or making sure they they fit in in that way do you think there's a danger that by being a girl boss we're actually just trying to fit into something that's stacked mm. against us it's interesting I do think that there is a shift in the landscape of what it means to be a female leader and I think we're catching up how lean in now seems quite outdated that concept of wearing a power suit and you know, like you said, breast pumping in a cubicle. I don't think that that's what we're taking into the future. I, I hope at least it's not. And the, the culture that I've tried to create in my company is that we talk really openly about being on our period and not feeling like working that day. Or we talk about how we're feeling in our personal lives and we try and bring in like sensitivity and female experience into work. And I think that that for me feels like what the future looks like is places that are compassionate, that are open, where women feel nurtured and they don't have to feel like they have to, I don't know, suppress I think that idea of kind of strength and putting on a power suit and kind of strutting around in heels around Canary Wharf I think that's kind of outdated now and I'm hoping Mm. that that shift will happen I think where it hasn't 
hasn't happened is in the corporates. And like, it feels to me like the creative industries and media have caught up and thought, you know, we want to bring in flexible working and we need to be able to talk about how we're feeling at work. But still, in your kind of traditional nine to fives, things like being a lawyer um, or, you don't know, working at KPMG, I think those are still quite traditional workplaces. And how you act as a woman in a leadership role there probably hasn't changed as much. And I think in the corporates, there's a lot more... Um attitude of like accommodating mm. rather than actually attracting people for those reasons like even if they say in a job description you know as I said before like we can, can we can discuss flexible working how empowered do we actually feel to ask for stuff mm. that should be on the menu anyway and it's all about yeah as I say being accommodated rather than and I think that's why they have such high drop-offs at those industries is that pe- women rise really quickly in the ranks and then they have kids and like, a lot of them don't go back to work and that's so much higher in the legal profession in the corporate world than it is in creative industries where it's possible to come back two days a week like I think that really fast-paced burnout culture just doesn't work as you get older as a woman mm-hmm. um now, I'm not doing this to embarrass you, but I looked at the comments under the article and I, as a, you know, as a fellow journalist, I know this well. Like every time I write something, I get, usually on a national, the comments are just atrocious. But did you, I don't know if you looked at them, but I mean... Um, well, I looked at them because you asked, <laughs> asked me to look at them. I wouldn't have otherwise. Unbelievable. Like, they are unbelievable. And I, they were a mix between really sexist and saying, you know, women shouldn't be in leadership roles and this is what happens when you let girls be bosses. So the kind of opposite of people calling me out as being sexist for trying to say that it is different to be a woman leader. And like, you know, this this idea of being a bit pampered or like a bit snowflakey for, for mm. wanting to call out those differences. I'm not saying like, woe is me. I'm saying our experience is different and we need to talk about that. And we need to have the language to talk about that. Yeah. But yeah, they're quite, quite horrific. But then I'm also just not surprised they're, by a lot of it. They're quite funny though. I think we have to just laugh. Like there's one saying, I saw my first woman bin emptier last month, but she went for the soft option of newspapers rather than food waste. It's <laughs> like, how is this relevant? or they can't remove a spider from a bath without screaming for a man to do it it's like that's not even relevant to what you've written whatsoever I think the thing is I often think is that if this conversation is making you uncomfortable like why we have the same thing we put on festivals that are exclusively women and we have usually about 75 female speakers and only female attendees and whenever we put them up on Twitter I will get people DMing me or messaging me saying like why are you only doing it for women and like well you know female entrepreneurs should just be entrepreneurs I'm like well it's not and we just talk about that Mm. and if it's making you uncomfortable why is it making you uncomfortable Mm. and it's probably because you're scared of women having power or you're scared of this idea of women in a room and what they can create and the energy in that room Mm. so yeah I, I think it's like look at yourself if that's how you feel yeah that's a good way of looking at it so I guess that kind of answers perhaps answers the question of how you feel about, you know, women collectives and the women's members clubs, which also caused a little bit of controversy. What do you think about them? Well, yeah, I, I, I know why they cause controversy, because I think a lot of them are marketed to a very high end audience. You know, a lot of them are like £1,000 for the year or something like that. And they seem like an expensive option. And I think that for some people, they feel like it's commercialising feminism a bit too far and that it's kind of for an exclusive demographic and that's not fair and that's not sisterhood. I think there's two things I would say on on the Private Members Club. One is that I think it's patronising to think that women can't afford them. Why, if a woman has the disposable income to pay for a nice glossy members club in Fitzrovia, why can't she? So that'd be the one thing. And the other thing I'd say is I think from my experience, it is hard to find those female networks and places like that are really beneficial is that the old boys club is still really like, it's really around and 
we don't have an alternative really and I think it is quite hard especially on mentorship that seems to be a word that's banded around a lot like find a mentor especially if you're working for yourself get a mentor mentors are really hard to find and for most women like they don't find them and you, you don't know where to go so I think if you can put yourself in a space where you're more likely to meet someone who's perhaps further in their journey that's really beneficial there's also spaces where women just feel safer and they feel more nurtured and perhaps an all-female space is a, is a great way to do that mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about the <clears throat> superwoman syndrome. And for some reason, whenever I say the word superwoman, I think of Helena Morrissey in yeah. the city because she had, what, nine or ten children? She has nine kids, yeah. Nine kids. And to her credit, she does retort, like, I'm not a superwoman. I have a husband at home and I have a, you know, networks and I have a you know, good income, etc. But it does seem when we look at, I don't know if it is specifically girl boss culture, but women at the top... Mm. Um, we do have the superwoman thing. And I guess it tallies into my earlier question about successes and focusing on success. But do you think that we've taken that too far? I think that the problem with the superwoman idea is that we're putting up one definition of success, which is that you've succeeded in your career and you've had children, basically. And what looks modern and forward thinking to me is that there isn't one definition of anything and having kids is not the marker of success in the same way that having a business that makes loads of money is also not a marker success is very personal and my experience having interviewed loads of female founders and lots of which you would consider to be ultra successful and have it all is actually that the thing they still don't feel great about themselves and why is that and perhaps it's because they're subscribing to someone else's definition of success or they don't quite know what that looks like to them so for example for me my definition of success is I can take a Friday off whenever I need to and that's really nice and that's something that like feels quite personal to me but it's like having the freedom and the I suppose the lack of financial stress that if I knew I had to sort of take a day off work I kind of can and I think that's because I sat down for quite a while and thought actually what would success in my work life look like to me and it would probably be something like that and it might be having kids but it might not be and I think we need to kind of take away this focus on having children as being like the thing that you've done really well like it, it's not enough it's not just it's not just the thing that having it all culture is, is actually quite damaging well when researching all the things that you do I was I just <laughs> I was just amazed because you fit so much in and when you said you can take off a Friday, you, I, I, the first thing I think is like, how do you do it? Sometimes I take off a Monday. I mean, sometimes I take off the whole week, honestly. But how do you do that? Well, I think so much going on. I do have a lot going on, but I think it's about um, creating the kind of work environment firstly that works for you. So I often will just work from home for a couple of hours and really focus before I kind of do anything or before I meet my team, having kind of flexibility. But I think when you really love it, you just don't, you think about it differently. I think when you're really passionate about what you're doing and you're kind of excited excited about the work that you're doing you're kind of willing to put in a couple of extra hours on the weekend or you want to work late and it's just a, I have a totally different attitude to work I think um so I don't kind of find it overwhelming um mm. and it's also about having people I suppose people that can work for you support you mm. you're I think of all the people I've worked with like when I wrote an article for you I think you emailed me back the quickest I've ever had in terms of replies and you also paid extremely quickly <laughs> yes we did also try so that is that kind of that. a ethos yeah yeah we, well we try to for sure I know how hard it is being freelance yeah um yeah it is. I don't know I think it, it's just about being careful with your time I suppose and mm. being quite planned yeah you talked in the article about the difficulty for women entrepreneurs to get funding mm. um, and I've actually used that stat myself about what for one for every one pound of venture capital investment in the UK all female founder teams get less than one penny yeah mixed teams do slightly better yeah. Um, but yeah you usually have to include a man is that something you've experienced either personally or seen 
at any point. So I never, never took investment. So not personally, but anecdotally, having moderated a lot of events with female founders, with the all-female team thing, very often that's because when they've gone to meet with VCs, they've thought that having a man on the team has made them more of like a safe option or a safe bet because they're worried that they'd want to two female founders want to go have kids or just you know they weren't reliable which is obviously hugely problematic but that's I think a reflection of that stat but also women not having confidence to start their own business so we know that all female teams get less funding but there's also less all female teams so it kind of starts with women not having the confidence to start businesses in the first place and then trying to get the capital is really hard Mm. and we've also there's also a lot of stats about kind of women female founded businesses not getting past early stage funding so they get the early stage and then I think it's 40% never get out of seed stage of female founded businesses Um, and that's partly because they get less money to start start with and then I think also it's a confidence thing and then they find it hard to raise more but that you know a lot of them actually burn out quite quite early on in their in their time yeah because I've also heard that when it comes to funding men usually invest or want to invest in businesses and ideas that they can relate to personally oh totally and that's such a problem because if you're going to a meeting and all the venture capitalists are men they're going to turn around and be like oh we don't get it and I know loads of women who have started femtech businesses whether it's like a period tracking app or I know some girls that started um, a CBD tampon range and when they were going to meetings the investors were like oh we don't really we don't really connect with it we don't really get it so that's so problematic because all these incredible businesses that are benefiting women that are started by women are just not getting a look in because men don't get it and like you know that's Mm. so we need way more women who are in that who are in the investment world as well yeah I always think of Cindy Gallup actually because I interviewed her once a founder of um, Make Love Not Porn and she has a constant struggle or at least she did to get funding for her kind of female focused Mm -hmm. she doesn't like the word porn but um adult erotica business I guess and um her whole life is spent like you know, on the road and speaking at different conferences and, and she has such a platform, but yet getting the money was like the, cru- the crux of it. Really, yeah, really difficult. Um, you also mentioned uh, that the fact about, you know, people not being able to see be what they can't see. Mm-hmm. So how important is that, do you think? And who are your role models? Oh, interesting. I think the not being able to be what you can't see thing is about showing women in different industries. So something we try to do is we have a campaign called She Started at 100, where we profile 100 women across various industries. And we try and show amazing women in STEM and in tech and, and different industries that are in engineering that traditionally, like, you don't see a lot of women in those businesses. And, you know, the, the leadership roles aren't really there. And I know, kind of anecdotally, again, a lot of female founders I've met have gone into unusual industries because when they were at school they had like a woman come in and do a talk and they're like oh it's possible and I think those kind of early stage things are really important of just getting into your mindset that like you can go into those roles or yeah you can be a female engineer or whatever it is Mm -hmm. so I think that is that is important across the board Mm -hmm. um role models well (laughs) I do know I think for me role models has to be quite personal I think it has to be people that you've had some kind of personal contact with I find it hard to be totally inspired by like a celebrity because I think I need to like have a feeling of connection so it's very social media does help with that though right yeah it it definitely does and yeah you definitely feel like you know people through Mm. Instagram even when you don't Mm. um but I would say my mum is an inspiration. She's a portrait painter. She's never had a traditional nine to five. She's been a portrait painter her whole life. She's painted some amazing people. Um, she's got portraits in the National Portrait Gallery. She's super cool. But she's always really encouraged me to take different routes. And I think, like I say about 
um, being what you can see. If I hadn't had a role model that was someone who was doing something totally different, totally freelance, that involved tons of self-belief and confidence, I probably wouldn't have had that in me either. So for me, like that, that feels like an important role model in my life. Like, has there been a recent moment or a big moment that you think of when you, you did have a knock to your confidence or there was a particular challenge? Oh, I think being self-employed or running your own business is a constant, constant ebb and flow. of It's it's minute by minute. It's self-doubt and then you pick yourself back up and it's self-doubt. And it, it happens so often. I think I've done it for six years now that I've come to realise that those moments of self-doubt will pass. And it just... It, washes over you it's a wave and that's okay rather than attaching loads of meaning because they're just thoughts aren't they we just think in that moment that we're not good enough or we can't do it and then the next thought comes along like buses you know so I've come to sit with the discomfort of it a little bit is that I know that I'll never fully back myself and I don't think anyone does and that's actually okay it doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing it you know I think part of the entrepreneur culture is like you know if you don't believe in it 110% then you're not going to do it no I mean sometimes I've believed in it like 4% and I've still done it and it's not always going to feel super connected it will feel right and intuitive at times but um, you can't always totally back yourself we all have moments God every time we launch like a big project or a festival I have a day of sitting with like shame and guilt before anything's even happened being like it's not going to work and then it's fine because doing things like podcasts and events and anything creative to a certain extent you you have to rely on other people you can't necessarily do it by yourself you have to have people show up you have to people not be sick or turn up late on the day like how do you deal with that side of the business I mean there's such inevitability with events that you can't control everything mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of it comes down to like planning and prep so making sure that the people that you've got involved feel a sense of like obligation to you so they have to be very well prepped and briefed and they feel like they're coming to something that's quite proper I think people f- tend to flake when they don't feel like it's that important mm-hmm. so that's often down to you to communicate oh I don't know but it's just it's just inevitable isn't it and I think the thing that I've tried to learn and practice and I talk to people about a lot is trying not to associate too much worth on the success and failure of your work is that people don't fail plans or strategies those are the things that fail but the people themselves are not the ones that are failing so even if we have an event that doesn't sell or we have a podcast that tanks or we have a brand partnership that falls through it's not a reflection of me and I think kind of like disassociating a little bit from the identity of the work that you do. I sometimes find it's useful if you, I don't know, go to a dinner party or something and someone says what you do, just totally make up something different. <laughs> just for an experiment to see how it feels to not be associated with the thing you do and not to have any sway by it. I think for years I was really like connected to being this female entrepreneur and running my own magazine and stuff. And then I thought, what if it one day all falls apart? Like, who am I going to be after that? Mm. And like facing that a little bit and trying to be like okay is is, is healthy because otherwise you're too connected to the whole thing what happens if you really invest and believe in something and it doesn't work people always say oh learn lessons from it and I get that what happens if there are no lessons to learn you loved it you were convinced it was going to work you can't see why it didn't for example you know your event didn't sell or whatever what do you do in those moments I think it depends on the scale of how much it fails if you're putting on something that you needed to make money on and you didn't okay perhaps that's not the best thing but maybe you have I don't know a podcast or a writing project or something that brings you loads of joy and it brings you no financial gain it might still be worth doing and I think if we take money out of the equation sometimes there are certain things I think you have to just do for the joy of it I do loads of things that are just for the joy I mean for a year or two I ran the magazine just for the joy like before we turn profit you know so I would I would question by whose definition is something failing Mm, you know that's a good one um on your website it says that you um you're turning in now six figure 
business and straight out of university. Wow. Tell me well, how you I'm did that. Well, I'm not straight out of university now. I'm <laughs> no, six years out of university. But that's pretty cool. So tell me more. But I mean, that's taking a real number of years to, to get to. And I think even turning six figures as a business, if you've got a number of employees, like that doesn't really mean a lot. So I think I'd always be quite hesitant, you know, when you see people on Instagram being like, how you can make a hundred grand in a year and you actually, you know, you've got loads of staff involved and stuff like that. Um, I think for us, it was about finding a stream, a couple of streams of revenue. So not relying on one thing. And I think especially in digital media, where the landscape is shifting so often and there's so many changes happening, I think if you just rely on one kind of business model, one thing that you make money from, that for me is very precarious. And I have friends who are influencers who talk about the same thing, that what if one day like Instagram just totally changes the algorithm or gets rid of all the likes or whatever it is? Do they have other things or other products that they can make money from? And they're scared of having that one kind of nest egg. So that's been my learning about building a sustainable business is have a couple of things that are feeding into one pot. And also I think like follow the energy a little bit, like feel where stuff is going. Sometimes like certain projects connect with your audience or with your customers a bit more than you were expecting and certain things don't. And I think there has to be an element of fluidity and flexibility about how you're approaching things that you say, okay, wow, like the wind is going this way and I'm going to turn with it and not being rigid, which I think honestly is a bit of a female attitude of, I've seen it with male founders where they've just got this one idea, they might have got an investment for a specific path and that is clearly not working and they're just kind of bull in a china shop trying to make this one path work. And I think a slightly softer approach to business is be like, let's go with our intuition a little bit, let's listen to our audience, let's get some feedback and let's move. And just, you know, day to day, you have to be able to move. Um, are you able to tell me any more about, because you mentioned doing this for two years on by yourself and then you turned to profit. Can you tell me a bit more about that journey? Yeah, sure. So I started straight out of university. I was 22. I had 500 quid savings and I was like, I'm going to just start like build a website and just see how I go with it. I was in, interested in lifestyle. I wanted to like write about restaurants. So I launched this first site and I did it for a, for a year on my own. Literally the most bootstrapped business you've ever come across. Like in my bedroom, I was living at home, working every day on my pajamas. And, you know, so many moments where I was like, what on earth am I doing? But like persevered through that first year, met someone amazing who interned with me and then became my first employee. And she worked with me for three years. And it was only really when we started to do events, I think that we turned a profit. But before that, we were kind of just relying on brand collaborations, which again, like coming back to the revenue model thing, I think if you only have something that relies on inbound it can be problematic what does that mean so people coming to you and being like here's some money you know Mm. or uh, i don't know yeah people approaching you basically and not having things that were like your own projects that you were trying to generate revenue from and we were quite precariously waiting on brands to come to us to pay for sponsored content and I think it was making me quite anxious being like oh god because you just there was that uncertainty it's the same as being a freelance journalist right you're waiting for commissions and you don't know when and where they're going to come from so I think trying to create some sense of like order and some sense of like a retainer where possible has has been quite beneficial for for making a profit but Mm -hmm. It takes time, honestly. And I think also if you're trying to do something that needs quite a lot of brand kudos, that can take time to build up a brand. Like Rome wasn't made overnight and neither was Vogue. And we need to like put in the years sometimes to get to the place that you can then leverage your audience and you can then launch new things and you have that that ready-made audience in front of you. Mm. So I would just like not be disheartened if it feels, even if it's like a blog or something, if it just feels like it's not going anywhere, you just have to keep doing it for quite a while till you, and then they'll just suddenly, there'll be a gear shift somewhere along your journey. I keep hearing that, this gear shift. And I'm wondering what, you know, 
what form that can take, like when you feel like it's really taking off? It depends. I think it's different for different businesses. Some For some businesses, it can be just one really good bit of press can change things. I... Um, I was on a panel moderating the founder of Mindful Chef. They're one of those recipe box delivery companies, um, similar to kind of Gusto. Um, and they, he said to me that they had a piece that was in the Telegraph and it was like top 10 recipe box delivery companies. And he said that there was one year that he wouldn't have got through if it wasn't for that Telegraph article because that Telegraph article was still getting so much traffic. And I think it was seven or eight years on. It was still getting so much traffic that they were getting so many boxes delivered via that kind of link on that website. And that was what stopped them like going bankrupt, basically. Wow. Um, I mean, I'm slightly paraphrasing that story. I'm sure he tells it better. But some for some businesses, it can just be like a, a really good bit of press or it can be like a journalist winning some award it, the, and you might not even feel the gear shift at the time but it, it will come is there one that you'd identify I think when we launched our first proper event series we did an, I think we did six events over six weeks um, I was knackered I was literally just yeah, doing yes. an event a week and it was like this hamster wheel of constantly being like oh have we sold out the next one you know um, but I think that was such a step up in like let's go out and meet our audience like we were doing this thing for years that was like a magazine behind a screen where we could see the numbers on Google Analytics but I didn't really know what our audience was about I didn't really know what they looked like connect to them and then when we started to try and move the digital into the physical I think that probably for me was where the gear shift happened because I started to have actual conversations with our audience I started to understand them a bit better and we could start to create things that fitted better with them mm-hmm. so the festival we have coming up in a few weeks that was really coming out of conversations that I'd had and then we had a, a festival in September and we have another one now and this one now we have free childcare all weekend Oh wow! and that only came about because I managed to speak to our audience at the last one and some of them said oh I had to like leave my husband and blah, 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 or Oh, I had a friend that really wanted to come, but she had a kid and she couldn't come. And I thought, how hard can it be? And it turns out it was not hard at all. That's very cool. I've yeah. never heard of that before. Yeah, well, it, do you know what? It really wasn't difficult. And I think I felt a bit ashamed when I was organising it because like, we should have been doing this for ages. It actually works out cheaper to come to the festival than to book childcare for the day. So uh, we were like, come if you're not interested in female empowerment, just come and get some free crisps, you know? Um, but <laughs> I think, hilarious. you know, it's slightly setting a standard mm. for, for what's normal and what's possible. And it really wasn't that difficult. So That's that's really cool. I was going to ask, what, what's your view on the difficulty of making money from the creative industry? Like, obviously, you started in media and then, you know, did events. Do you think, from talking to other people, etc., do you think it's more difficult now? Oh, it's super difficult. I think you just have to do something, like, quite niche and quite different and have a unique voice to it but yeah it's a super competitive landscape mm-hmm. being a journalist right now is very difficult and this whole thing about like personal brand seems to be the big thing that everyone's talking about that if you want to make it as a journalist you have to have this like unique sense of identity and voice and you have to have quite a good social following and things that I think weren't always expected of journalists it wasn't just like you can write it's now they're kind of expected to be a lot more digitally savvy I think than previously um and i think that partly comes down to also people being made redundant it's like you have to have like a brand identity so if you are made redundant you kind of have a sense of yourself and you know what you're going on to i don't know i just Mm. think there's a lot more pressure on just being a journalist um talking of following you have like fifty-five thousand followers on twitter yeah which is a lot yeah so tell me about how you built that up um i don't really know i think it was in the early days of About Time, I think it was doing a lot of the same thing, which was consistently tweeting about restaurants and things to do in London. I think with Twitter, I think back then at least, people wanted stuff that was very useful. And I think just with any social media, really, I try and 
think like is this actually useful to people same with Instagram really is like what what value are you adding to people so I think I, I developed probably a bit of a following because people wanted to know like where to take their mum for afternoon tea <laughs> I know I'm, I still spend ages replying to people's DMs asking for lifestyle-y things um, but you know I have a good following but it also you know it pivoted when I pivoted into doing empowerment events and it like my following changed a lot I think because a lot of people dropped off because they were not interested in that stuff as well mm. so your your kind of audience will shift I've always tried to take people along my journey I've always like shared when it's been hard when we've messed up I've tried to be authentic and honest because I think that is the only way that people are going to actually be encouraged to do their own thing is to know how difficult it is at times mm. and I think people like seeing the behind the scenes of someone's journey a little bit as well um, and I'll be quite open when I'm kind of burnt out or, or whatever it is and, and go to people for advice as well you know treating your audiences like a friend as much as you can so when you mentioned earlier about you know you feel as a woman entrepreneur that your experience has been different partially partially down to your gender can you just talk a little bit more about what that experience has been like yeah i think it has been i think um definitely my early days of doing this i think i was in a lot of situations where i felt quite vulnerable and i had a lot of experiences that were like I don't know, n- nicer older men trying to give me advice would be how I would describe it. I'm sure you've had similar stuff. But I had a lot of experiences that were like, kind of like men in their 50s who were working in journalism. I don't know, they were editors or they ran magazines. And they'd like want to go out for lunch and give me advice about starting my own thing. And it'd be like, you go for lunch and then you'd like somehow end up at the Ivy having like a few too many martinis that were a bit too strong for you. And I had one incident where it was with a quite senior male journalist and Ended up the Ivy, had loads of drinks, and then I said, I'm, I'm going to go home, I've had enough. He said, but I've, but I've bought you lunch and I've bought you drinks. And was really quite affronted that I was leaving. And I thought, this is not a, a work thing. Mm. And I know that sounds like quite a, a random story, but that's quite common of like, I don't know, like just feeling vulnerable in a way and feeling like you're this like young girl that people are trying to advise, but actually there's something like there's an undercurrent. And I only think like in the kind of post Me Too world are we actually starting to look at the nuances of sexism and what it actually looks like. And I just don't think that those kind of... Exp- I think there was an element of obligation, actually, about the whole experience that I, f- that I felt quite a lot, actually. Um, so that would probably be one thing. It's just not feeling totally safe a lot of the time. And then the other thing I think is probably being quite patronised along the way. I think people are often like, oh, good good, good on you for like running a business. Like, oh, that's really great. In a, in a way that they're surprised and I kind of hate that a little bit. Um, mm. I think there were some stats that came out from Santander today that um, like 80% of school kids couldn't name a female entrepreneur and that they thought man when they saw the word entrepreneur. And I think that's still pretty common is that we associate business and men and that kind of business is a male thing, basically. It's interesting when you're saying about the kind of older, nice guy trying to give advice, because I definitely remember being in my early 20s and being okay with them being kind of paternal because I kind of expected it like, yeah, I'm young. Like, why wouldn't they treat me like that? Mm. But I don't remember the specific point when I kind of graduated out of that feeling and became a bit more alert and understood the nuances of Mm. gender inequality and all that and how I moved from that feeling that it was okay to actually definitely not being okay but also learning to be more confident about my own authority yeah how do you feel about your authority well it's difficult isn't it because I think if I look back on it now I probably did encourage it a bit I think I probably played up to the fact that I was young and I got away with a lot of stuff like I got a lot of help I got a lot of support just from being this young girl doing something running about London. So I I think I played into it and I think that 
it's kind of important to say that sometimes because it isn't totally black and white that it's that women feel uncomfortable because at the time perhaps I didn't and it, you're right it's only as you get older you start to think was that appropriate or was that situation normal like you know would that have happened if I was a guy um so what's the second half of the question <laughs> so how do you feel about your own authority your sense of authority now are you very comfortable with it or do you because some women project it rather than feel it well I think authority comes out of self-confidence a little bit I think I have a lot more self-confidence in how to run and manage a team now so I kind of have a greater sense of my authority but that's I only have an all-female team so mm. I don't know really I think it's your your power isn't it and as you get older you get you get a surer sense of your power and what you're able to do yeah so if you are you ever in situations now where you're just naturally you know talking to a man about business do you feel different to when you first started I feel a lot savvier now okay I can kind of see I feel like I can see what's happening a bit more when I have conversations with men about business in a way that I didn't when I was younger and I feel more confident about it but I also feel like the yardstick with which we measure success is still quite male so like if I talk to a guy about business often they'll just off the bat ask about money you know and I I think that that attitude is... What do they ask you, like quite, how much you earn? Oh, yeah, like that happens the whole time. If I say I run a business, they'll be like, oh, well, the, the main three things that I get asked are how much money do you make, how many staff do you have, and do you have an office? Because I think people want to put you in a box a little bit. They want to, like, suss you out. I think, again, it's coming back to that, I, that thing of being scared of women's power a little bit. So they want to, like get a sense of you. They want to define you and whatever. And I like to throw people by being like, oh, I don't really believe in offices. And then they're like, what, you know? And I think, no, I actually really just, I just don't really believe in them. And it puts people off, but like, but you can still turn six figures if you want to and, and not have an office or you can have remote staff, like all sorts of things. I, I think that's what kind of modern business looks like. And for me, that's kind of what female business looks like because part of the reason that women want to start their own businesses is that they are that the structure they're put in just doesn't work for them as they get older. They don't have the flexibility. They don't have the freedom. They don't know how to juggle motherhood and, and their careers. And so they have, kind of have no choice. They're backed into a corner, but to start their own thing or to go freelance because those, those structures are outdated. Do you, um, apart from the office thing, do you answer their questions or do you do you like actually that's personal I don't Ooh, want to it depends how sassy I'm feeling okay. if I'm having like a confident day then I'm happy to yeah. um, but no for the most part I don't because I think it's playing into ego and I don't I don't think and I don't think for me it feels like the correct marker of success because I don't think the money shows how fulfilled you are and for me it's not it's just not about the money it's about fulfillment I would do it for free you know I'd do it if I earned no money if I could because I want to feel fulfilled by stuff and I think you know when we talk about goals with our with our businesses and goals with our careers I try not to focus on really arbitrary goals like I want to make x amount of money or I want to have this level of success I try and focus on how I want to feel and I think your commitment to stuff is so much stronger if you're like I want to wake up and I want to feel this way or I want to get to Friday and I want to feel this way and if you can figure out how you want to feel the other stuff the money all the rest of it will come because it, it kind of has to um, but if you can connect with the feeling a bit more I think that's better I really like that I'm just processing that I think that's a conversation I don't hear much in that entrepreneur culture no. It's all about Because how, what I'm trying to say is there yeah. is a feminine approach to business. There right. is a different way of doing it. And we're uncomfortable to say it because we don't want to say that male and female are different. But I think there's a slightly more kind of soft, spiritual, intuitive, just connected way of doing business that is kind of more female, 
in a way because all the stuff that we're talking about money and and power and offices and I don't know it's all like masculine ideas of success and that they don't work they don't work for women they're like outdated they're not what we're using like the feminine version of it is that I feel successful if I can have like I don't know like three kids and I can still like enjoy my work that's actually like what success looks like to me and if we're trying to package it in what is quite outdated way of thinking about it which is a male way like it's it's not going to work yeah going back to the role models for a sec because you've you've interviewed some incredible people in your podcast Ree Blair and um, Natasha Devon and many others and obviously you've met them at events is there anyone you are currently trying to get to interview or would like to interview I've interviewed so many amazing people um I'd like to interview the founders of The Wing, actually, the, the oh, co-working yeah. space, because I think it's interesting and it's also had so much good and bad press. Mm-hmm. And she was, like, photographed nine months pregnant on the cover of a magazine. I think she seems very cool, so I think that will be on my target list. I've not mentioned the one person that is getting so much backlash for a girl boss, Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, yes. We have to finish the conversation on Gwyneth Paltrow. GP. I'm watching her show at the moment. What do you think about her? Um, what do you think of the show, more importantly? <laughs> I'm amazed that she's 49 and she didn't know the difference between a vulva and a oh vagina. I can't believe they let that go out. That they, that, wow. Yeah. Um, I, well, I don't know. I think I'm quite conflicted on GP because I think it Goop does somewhat take advantage of people's insecurities and it does sell them things that are meant to make them feel better that that, that won't and we have to be really careful with well-being because there has become this conflation between well-being and mental health and they're not the same thing and you know taking ashwagandha and having mushroom lattes might not be the thing that's going to make you feel better the same with sort of a cbd and just lots of things i think we're kind of confused about and i think things like goop kind of um fulfill that a little bit but then at the same time, like, why do we give women such a hard time about everything? Like, she's successful, she's beautiful, like, why must we hate on her for that? I just don't think it's fair, and I think, I don't know, I think, again, it's comes back to what I was saying earlier, but if it makes you uncomfortable, why does it make you uncomfortable? Why do we not want to see that? Is it because we're jealous, because we're envious? Is it because it's making us feel bad about ourselves? So I would just say, like, look at yourself. Like, I don't have any reason to dislike her, and as much as I can, I try and support other women. Mm. It's the same as when people are, like, really worried about launching something or, 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 or going down a particular career route because they're scared of competition, and, like, that's just not how we can be. I think there is space for everyone, and we can't be kind of envious or jealous of other people's careers. That's a really good note to end on, I think. So thank you so much, Angela. You're welcome. Next up, I speak to Hayley Milhouse, who is Head of Advisor Services at our sponsor, Open Money, to give us a few practical and financial tips if you're thinking of starting your own business. Once you have done your research and created a business plan, the next stage of starting your own business is to plan your finances and choose your business structure. The business entity you choose will impact on your liability and the way you pay your tax. If you are looking for simplicity and running your own business as an individual and self-employed, then you want to become a sole trader. As a sole trader, you will be personally responsible for your business debts and have some accounting responsibility. You'll need to keep a record of your sales and business expenses and send a self-assessment tax return every year to HMRC. You will pay income tax on your profits and also Class 2 and 4 national insurance contributions. 
State pension is based on Class 2 National Insurance Contribution record for self-employed people and you will need 35 qualifying years to get the full state pension in the future. You also may need to register for VAT if your turnover reaches a certain threshold. Now, if you want your personal and business finances to be separate, then forming a limited company will be more appropriate. But there are more reporting and management responsibilities. When you create a limited company, you become a director of that company and you must follow the rules that are shown in the Articles of Association. You must keep company records and report any changes. You must also file your account and company tax return and you will pay corporation tax. Some people choose to get help from a professional, for example an accountant, but this will incur additional costs. Starting your own business can help with work-life balance. However, it's not easy and requires discipline, not only with your finances, but with your time too. Making provision for later life and saving into a pension is a must. This responsibility is solely down to you, as you do not have an employer helping you to make those decisions and contributing to your pension. You don't want to overlook the additional help you will get from the government when saving for later life and pensions are a flexible and efficient way to do this. Thank you for listening to An Honest Account. Please rate, review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And apparently the algorithm thingy makes it easier for people to find us. We're on Twitter at honest underscore account underscore or you can email us contact at anhonestaccount.co.uk. See you next time. Thank you.